Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 91 from May 10th, 2007. Mark Mayfrey of EI Digital Security. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, episode 91, and a great episode, a, one, of the, one of the rare interview episodes coming up in just a little bit. Let's welcome Steve Gibson of GRC.com fame. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Well, of course, we're cheating a little bit. We already recorded this fantastic interview with um, Mark Mayfrey, who is the founder, or actually, I guess, co-founder with a friend of his of EI uh, Security that we talk about. You know, I mean, their name comes up over and over and over because these are the guys, for example, that are finding all kinds of problems in Windows, telling Microsoft about them, and then waiting month and month and month <laughs> for Microsoft to finally patch the problem, during which, and I, I remember saying this, and, and one of the questions I asked Mark was I wanted to make sure we were right about this, during that interval when they are aware of, of a vulnerability Windows and Microsoft, well, I, said, no, I should not say Windows, Microsoft is aware of a, of a vulnerability, and there's this, there, there's this window of potential zero-day exploitation. Well, due to the, the technology that EI has, their users are preemptively protected. And in fact, not only are they protected, and this is, actually it's even better than I was saying, not only are they protected because EI knows well before Windows has been updated, but EI's technology, as we're going to hear Mark describe it, is fundamentally preemptive because he's doing a, a filtering at many levels, one of which is the protocol level. So, for example, they're looking at the data coming in at, for sanity checking, saying, does this make sense? And so even if there's a vulnerability which Windows is unaware of and which actually EI is unaware of, their system will catch and block unknown problems. Um, and what we learned, really, uh, and I'm very excited about this, I want to make sure people don't miss this, is there is a essentially a, a one-year free download for domestic users. Um, and even after that one year, Blink is very affordable. Um, I'm I'm very excited by what we learned during this hour-long conversation with Mark. Well, we'll get to that, of course, in just a little bit. Uh, before we do, anything you want to uh, clear up, clean up, fix, or uh, rebut yes. from last, yes. uh, last episode? Yes. Um, I'm going to try to do a better job of reading my mail because I'm finding so much good stuff <laughs> in there. So I, I'm expanding the definition of our uh, top of the show errata to calling it maybe errata and mailbag. Good, good. So that we have the opportunity of, of share, sharing just one or two good things that the that, that, that people have, have noted. And uh, many listeners commented about um, RSA's secure ID. You remember that two weeks ago, or was it last week, 
it was last week, we talked about um, the multi-factor authentication. Yeah, that was last and, week. And, and Secure ID was RSA's token that, that shows a, a six-digit constantly changing or con- – well, changing once every minute uh, – changing um, number, which move it's sort of a pseudo-random sequence. It moves through – a, 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 pro, a progression that is a function of the the cryptographic information stored inside this thing. And whenever you connect to an RSA-based server, it's able to synchronize. Well, an, I mean, a huge number of people said, hey, we use Secure ID. And one thing you forgot to mention is that when you set up for this system, you provide them with a password, which you, which you prepend to the front of those six digits. So that's not so that adds something you know to the something you have in order to get two factor authentication. And it's clear that this varies. So apparently you don't have to do that. Some people use a four digit or four number pin. Other people actually use a you know their own password that they've chosen. But I did want to bring it up because many people wrote to say, hey, we you know part of this is it's not just this these six digits because that would only give you single factor authentication something you have proving that that you have the token in your possession which is generating this number but you also prepend something that you know being your hopefully secret pin or password then i had one fun anecdote uh, from someone named Scott in Washington. He wanted to keep his his last name private. I don't blame him. Uh, you'll see why in a second. Washington regarding, State or Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. Regarding hand scanners, you know, the idea we were talking about, the biometrics of, of hands. And, and I mentioned how, for example, I didn't feel that hand sizing would be enough, clearly w- right. would be accurate enough and, and distinguishing enough and, and, and essentially differentiating enough to use as as your sole ID, but for example, when I enter level three, I do it with a pass card coupled with my hand, so that the system is able to say, "Oh, this is maybe Steve. Let's see whether this is his right hand." Oh, yes, we believe it, and then it unlocks a door. <laughs> so, so Scott says, as for your discussion on hand geometry, most of the studies I've seen said it can be sufficient for low risk physical access. If you are using hand geometry for access to a server room, what was the security leading to the door? Was this another layer in the physical access controls of the location where the servers were located? I ask because I am reminded of my college days where they used hand geometry for access to the dining halls. Those of us who were non-weekend meal plans used used to take the cards from friends with similar hand geometry to use at the dining hall. Even if even if the friend ate earlier, I could still use his wow. card to get in and have my own Seconds. free meal. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that a great? So, so so I love that because you know, you'd like go around and like you know, put, you know, high fiving people to find somebody who has the same size hand and then say, Hey, do you have the weekend meal plan? Can I borrow your card? Because, you know, the system wouldn't be good enough to know. Right. I hope they've gotten better than that. And then finally, we heard from a 12-year-old listener with, uh, with a note that I got a kick I out. love that. Man, I wish my 12-year-old would listen. Uh, well, I'm his impressed. name, uh, this guy is, is, is Justin Gerard, and he says, Hey, Steve, 
I'm a 12-year-old kid who listens to security now and is quite computer savvy. A few weeks back, my drive in my two-year-old XPS 600 just died. I don't know what it was, but I just got a BSOD. And, 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 and then, then he wrote, the blue screen of death's brother, the black screen of Ooh, death. Even worse. He says, I scheduled a geek squad visit so they could fix it. I was watching what he was doing, and he popped a CD into the system. Lo and behold, it booted into Spinrite. Well, now I have new respect for the Geek Squad. Well, not, not quite, Leo. Wait till I'm done here. It says, needless to say, Spinrite fixed it, and I'm now a firm believer and will be getting a copy soon. Okay, the, pro the bad news is I've checked with my office. The Geek Squad uh -oh. has no license for uh -oh. Spinrite. Oh, I hope that's not. Maybe it was his personal for a copy. Uh, well, but you can't but, use a oh, commercial copy. They need a commercial license. Yeah, we actually have three. We have the, the normal end-user license, a single user, and I have no problem if people use it on all the machines they own. And as we've heard in the past, if a, a buddy of yours has their machine die, I'm not going to complain if you go fix his machine. Then... Then we have our site license, which says a company is welcome to use it on all of their machines in a single location if they will have four copies. The cool thing about that is people can buy one to try it and then buy three more to qualify for the site license. I mean, it just it's very nice. Obviously, this is all the honor system, but I'm, I've been very impressed with how many sets of four I've been seeing sold after we made this more clear, you know, during Good. our podcast. Good. And then we have an enter what we call an enterprise license, which is 10 copies. And you can't buy 10 over the website because we we limit it to 4 just to prevent there from being any chance for like funky ab abuse of some sort. But if you just write to our, our sales email address on our website, um Sue will will allow you to purchase 10 copies and an enterprise license allows you to use it on, you know, multiple sites within, you know, a, a single enterprise. Um, and, you know, just for as long as you want to, to fix all the machines you have trouble with. The problem is, of course, the Geek Squad has been in trouble before, as you may remember, Leo, from, yeah. from using the, unlicensed the software. Oh, okay. I was going to say. This, oh, this is not our nerds, guys. The uh, nerds on site guys. No, those they're are good. One, That's they're 100% legitimate yeah. and great guys. The yeah, Geek this Squad's is the, the best buy uh, company, uh, people, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, if there's anyone listening <clears throat> within range of the Geek Squad, Busted I, again. I, would, I would invite you to uh, upgrade yourself to an enterprise license, and then I'd be more than happy to... Uh, to have you guys running around popping your Spinrite boot CDs into your customers' machines and fixing their hard drives we for have them. spies everywhere. <laughs> hey, as long as we're talking about nerds on site, and before we get to Mark Mayfrey, I, I, I think we should mention the great people at Nerds on Site. They are not the Geek Squad. No, in fact, they have a license for Spinrite, don't they? Yes, they They're do. Absolutely uh, legitimate. Yep. In fact, that's one of the benefits. Now, the idea is. Uh, Nerds on site, you still get to be in business for yourself, but you're they're there to support you. So you're not you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. You focus on what you love to do, and you don't have to worry so much about the business side of it. Uh, they're growing. They need more nerds to service their customers worldwide. Over seven countries: Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia. I think a few more countries. I'm not even. It's not even on this list. Uh, they look for nerds with all kinds of skills. 
PC and Mac experts, Cisco, Oracle, you name it, they need it. Fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, even sales, even trainers, and of course, security experts. And people like uh, the people who listen to this show, antivirus gurus and more. Especially if you're one of those nerds who troubleshoots, tears apart, and rebuilds your own systems in your own spare time. You might want to contact them. They have a University of Nerdology with over 250 different topics, including systems, architecture design, software development, full on-source IT departments to desktop support, and Soho residential IT services. Do it right with nerds on site. Oh, I like that. I just made that up. If you want to know more, visit IWantToBeANerd.com. IWantToBeANerd.com. You can register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. They're great people. We give them the Security Now seal of approval, and we thank them for their support of the show. IWantToBeANerd.com. Shall we uh, say hello to Mark Maffray? Absolutely. We have such a great hour. I'm really excited. First thing we asked him, of course, is how he got started in the security business. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I started uh, roughly about eight or nine years ago, um, and it was started uh, by myself and uh, my co-founder of Frost Bushnock. And at the time, I was basically your, you know, typical seventeen-year-old teenager, you know, hacking and uh, doing all the things I shouldn't have been doing. And uh, you were bla- story- you were a, you were kind of a black hat <laughs> hacker at the time. Yeah, at the time, yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, I had a uh, long story short, the kind of wake up call one day when I was 17 that I was, you know, uh, raided by the FBI. And that was really the point where, uh, you know, I knew that all, all this, you know, stuff I had been kind of doing that was really more of, you know, for fun and, and typical teenager stuff, but on a much larger scale, um, uh, realized that, you know, I need to actually kind of grow up and do something with my life. Um, you're kind of lucky you, know, you had that call to Jesus. <laughs> although I have to, th- I'm thinking of Kevin Polson and Kevin Mitnick both got caught as, uh, yeah. Miners and didn't it weren't weren't sufficiently scared, I guess, to stop. So you, yeah, you, exactly. you avoided jail yeah, time. I mean, I was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never, I never went to jail, or you know, I was, I've never been arrested or any of that sort That's of stuff good. in my life. Yeah. So I, I think well, I have some parking tickets. Well, and whatnot, just but, out of curiosity, what were you uh, doing when you got caught by the FBI? I mean, you, you name it. At the time, I had uh, I'd been in a couple of different hacking groups and. I was a part of pretty much one of the, everybody's familiar with hacking groups like The Loft, for example. Um, and I was a part of uh, uh, one of the hacking groups at the time, which was called Rhino9. And we were pretty much one of the first um, hacking groups that was focused around uh, security and, and exploits around Microsoft uh, Windows and, and really like a Microsoft-centric uh, focus around the research and the hacking. At the same time, I had also been doing a lot of stuff, everything from you know compromising systems to, you know, you name it, pretty much the name <laughs> Um, Name I'm your cur- company or government, and <laughs> oh goodness, I'm I, I'm curious. At age seventeen, did you did you have a different direction sort of marked out for yourself? Did you have some interests, or were you just sort of like I mean, I'm I'm wondering if EI and this this switching over to doing good replaced some other plans you had, or had you not nothing at that point really cast in stone? Yeah, there, there wasn't really plans at the time. I mean, the the whole hacking to me was really just kind of an escape uh, from, an, let's say, interesting home life, if you will. Um, so it really just kind of was this train, you know, that I jumped on. Everything was happening fast, and uh, as far as everything related to hacking and stuff, and I, I really didn't have a thought of uh, where it was all going. I mean, you know, I didn't really have a kind of perception of how big some of the stuff was that I was doing at the time. And, and, and of course, being part of Rhino 9 gave you a group identity. You are now a member of something and, and you were Ex- like, you know, connected to a whole bunch of guys that were, you know, similar thinking. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, and so that I just kind of got lost in it all, really. 
You know, there wasn't really any kind of grand scheme or plan or anything else and really got lost in it. And that, that's why, you know, I really use the term wake up call, you know, as it's pretty much the best way is because I, I was lost in the whole hacking and everything I was doing at the time and, you know, being raided, you know, was a wake up call. And, you know, I was lucky enough that, um, you know, a after that happened, um, I had also previously, again, kind of long story short, before I was raided, I was actually, uh, I uh, had ran away from home for about a year and was living all throughout the United States doing hacking and different stuff. Um, like I said, I got back, everything caught up to me, and I was raided and pretty much made the decision at that point um, that you know I, high school wasn't for me. Um, I, I really wasn't uh, happy going there, not because I thought I was smarter than everybody or anything like that, um, but just wasn't kind of what I wanted to be doing at the time. So you know, I worked out a thing with uh, – my mom and everybody else that, you know, I wanted to start working and looked around and, you know, being a 17 year old and whatnot, it wasn't like you just go jump into a security job. So I actually got a job at a, a website design hosting company, um, where, uh, which Frost Wishnuck had started and started showing them about the different, uh, tools that I had been using, which were kind of more exploit tools or like kind of penetration testing tools. And, you know, he comes from a software development background. If you guys are familiar with the company Berkeley uh, Systems and oh, the yeah. uh, oh, sure, screensavers and everything. He oh, that's was, neat. That's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Remember when the guys actually used to buy screensavers? Yeah. So. And Berkeley <laughs> Systems was the best, man. Flying <laughs> exactly. toasters. And, oh, yeah. Exactly. Lawnmower man. So, yeah. He kind of he came from that background, you know, a very much more structured, standardized, but nothing security specific. And we really just got together and, you know, talked about, you know, what we'd want to do product wise. And that's where we came up with uh, our first product and still our most prominent product, which is uh, Retina, um, uh, which is a vulnerability assessment product. And the simplest way is that you target, here's all the different computers that exist on your network. And Retina will give you the output as far as here's all the ways that people could break into the computers and then to how, uh, how to actually solve all of those problems, you know, and kind of, kind of looking at your network uh, like a hacker, thinking like a hacker, as we would say. Um, and as we started having a lot of success with Retina, um, everywhere from, we have, I think, roughly about 9,000 customers using Retina. And you can name some of the biggest, the entire uh, Department of Defense, uh, which is funny considering I was raided when I was a kid. But <laughs> the, entire, uh, right. the entire Department of Defense is actually standardized on, on using Retina as their vulnerability assessment solution. So compare, and as we com started, com compare uh, Retina to something like Nmap. How is Retina different? What, yeah, is, so what does it do? Nmap is really something more of, you know, it's obviously, as you guys know, it's going to map out all your ports, and it's really going to stop at the point of here's the attack surface as far as here's all the services and ports uh, that exist that you could uh, potentially use to exploit. Retina takes it many steps further where it will actually determine what are all the vulnerabilities that exist within those services. So it needs and, to know what exploits are current. Exactly, exactly. So Retina's kept up to date with, you know, what are all the current vulnerabilities for, you know, example, yesterday being Microsoft Patch Tuesday, huh. uh, two of the most critical vulnerabilities, uh, one revolved around uh, Microsoft Exchange and the other with the Microsoft uh, DNS services. And Retina will be able to remotely, rather than just telling you you have Exchange running, uh, like what an Nmap would do, Retina will tell you that an Exchange is there and here's the five different vulnerabilities or misconfigurations uh, that you need to resolve, otherwise your system can be compromised. Um, and that eventually built out into more of an a enterprise solution with a product that we have called REM. And REM is what would be used at like a, a department you know, of defense or a large you know, bank or something where you have 
you know, 60 different retina scanners all throughout the world that are all tunneling back to a central server to give you a consolidated view of. So, so what uh, essentially REM is a, like a, a centralizing management console for distributed retina installs? Exactly. It'd be for distributed retina scanning. Um, and really, the, the kind of one of the main differences is if you look at most vulnerability assessment, the standalone solutions like Retina um, or like what a Nessus would be or something, uh, those are really just saying, here's your computers, here's some vulnerabilities and that sort of stuff. When you look at like an enterprise or, or any sort of business level, uh, people really want to be able to look at their vulnerabilities and attack information. And they want to be able to report and think about it the same way that they think about their business. You know, so you might want to overlay some sort of a manufacturing business process and then know what are the potential vulnerabilities and security weaknesses that are part of that process. And so REM really brings it to that kind of level, not just centralizing all of your vulnerability and attack information, uh, but also giving you all the different kind of analytics and stuff that you would need to make sense of this mountain of data. I'm I'm grinning over here as I'm listening to you because you've gone totally corporate, Mark. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's paying the bills, so that's great. It is, it is, <laughs> and, and it's better than eating tuna fish in jail for three years either, too. I mean, it's, this is true. Yeah, Bubba's only funny for so long. So, <laughs> so, so at, at one point a while ago, I w- when when we were talking about you, I was assuming that if you found a vulnerability that you reported under sort of, you know, so-called responsible reporting guidelines, meaning that you secretly tell Microsoft you found something, but you, and and you'll say something about it on your site, but certainly not divulge any, you know, any any useful information that that, that the bad guys could take advantage of, then are you preemptively protecting through some mechanism your customers against that, you know, so-called zero day, if yeah. somebody else took advantage of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was one of the things that for the longest time we've been doing is, you know, the identification of vulnerabilities through products like Retina. And we really, in doing that, part of it was the uh, uh, research aspect of EI discovering vulnerabilities, you know, which I could definitely expand on. But yep. on the point of, you know, on the protection side, I mean, that really led us to uh, create our Blink product, um, which I think you guys have mentioned recently. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's that, very so exciting, the, actually. Uh, Exactly. You know, so we have the we really focus on the kind of vulnerabilities and security from the two perspectives of tell you everything. You know, where do we stand from a security perspective, and then actively actually protecting you. And that's where Blink comes in. And I mean, part of it is if you name you know kind of any of your run of mill different you know critical Microsoft flaws, we had been discovering so many of them, and we had a lot of customers that were telling us why don't you guys have a solution that just protects us so that if it takes us three months to patch or something of that nature. And that's really where uh, Blink came about um, in being able to shield, you know, whether it's desktops or servers um, from attacks, um, regardless if you have patches installed or not. And, you know, I mean, everything from, you know, the consumer user who maybe just isn't good about patching, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems that, you know, haven't been uncovered in consumer security but at the same time, on a business level, um, there's a lot of uh, uh, time that it takes just to roll out patches. And when you have exploits that are either zero days, so there is no patch, uh, or in the case of um, uh, a lot of times when a patch does come out, there'll be an exploit within a few hours, whereas most people, it takes them you know, typically at least a couple of weeks or more uh, to actually roll out patches within their business. And even when you're doing that, you end up where you're rolling out patches in a rush, 
which means you don't really get to do all the testing to talk, you know, look at compatibility and that sort of thing. So Blink being there is you can take Windows 2000, put Blink on the system, have no patches on that system, put it live on the Internet, and it won't get compromised. Um, and it's really taking all the research and everything that EI has been learning in the last, you know, eight or nine years about vulnerabilities and research and putting it into a product to protect people. And, you know, I think probably the most exciting thing for me is, you know, we've been doing that on the business side and as far as selling Blink to corporations and a lot of the same Retina customers, but even more exciting is the stuff that we're doing on the consumer side. Because if you look at, uh, you know, still to this day, my mom and everybody else's mom that are worrying about, you know, protecting their individual desk, you know, consumer desktop, uh, they're still heavily dependent on stuff like antivirus, which just isn't cut out for the types of attacks that people are facing today. So, um, so was, your mom is your your mom is no longer worrying about you. She's now worrying about yeah. what you, she's now worrying about what you used to do. Is Blink? A, yeah. a, a, is it a firewall? Does it is it a patch program? What? How is it protecting me? Yeah, Blink's actually um, a handful of layers of protection. Um, is it, it is doesn't it really go about. Is, is it a protocol proxy, Mark? Yeah, actually, it does oh, a few things. So we do nice. have, we do have um, uh, that your standard, you know, application firewalling. You know, what what programs should and shouldn't communicate to the internet. We all know the problem with that is that my mom's going to say yes to every program or no to every program, and she's going to break things or open herself up to attack. So the application firewalling, you know, which is re- which was really the first extension in security beyond antivirus. We have that within Blink. Um, at the same time, you can have Blink. You can turn off the application firewall, and we're still going to protect you from every attack. And the way that we do that is through a few levels. Um, we do do the network-based um, protocol analysis. So in the case of remote exploits over RPC or something of that nature, we'll be analyzing the protocol and looking generically for buffer overflows, integer overflows, any sorts of malformed requests and that sort of stuff. Uh, beyond just the network layer itself, we also have hooks into the application layer, with application-specific plugins for stuff like Internet Explorer and Outlook, looking for more application vulnerabilities. And then we also do protection within uh, the actual kernel itself, um, hooking various uh, um, APIs and looking for kind of common types of bad behavior. Um, and then the kind of last part rounding it out is the um, uh, what we call kind of application protection, uh, which is our you know kind of generic buffer overflow and related type of technology. And the important part is that, you know, with Blink, uh, you know, some people might say it's, it truly is everything in the kitchen sink. <laughs> um, it'd be hard-pressed to find another host-based security software that does everything that Blink can do. But I think one of the kind of feats of what we're able to do is that we're able to do all that with still using less memory than the McAfee's and Symantec's and everybody else and having a better performance because it's always the balance of you can really truly protect uh, a system but if it means that now my mom is having a delay on her Yahoo games coming up, she's not going to be a happy person. She's going to start right. disabling things. And that, that's the real world that a lot of security people kind of forget is the usability aspects and stuff. Do you um, still recommend what, using a fire a, a antivirus or anti spyware along with Blink or do you not? Uh, no, one of the one of the last layers or one of the last couple of layers of Blink beyond preventing attacks uh, that come from vulnerabilities is Blink actually has. Um, a full-blown anti-malware, which is antivirus and anti-spyware wow. uh, solution. So you really don't in. need any other security software. You know, you truly, you truly don't. Um, and even on the antivirus side it, it, itself, is that not only are we doing your classical, 
keeping signatures up to date, looking for signatures of virus. But there's also a sandbox technology, which will take, take an executable, emulate it in a virtual environment so we can see what's the behavior of the executable. And if we see the executable is going to connect to uh, an IRC server in Russia and take botnet commands, we know without having a signature or not that that's a malicious piece of code. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. You can flag yeah. it, you know. <laughs> and it, so there's a lot of stuff like that, you know, because it's the same thing on the viruses is you're always, you know, only as good as your signature update. And we all worry about, we all worry about zero-day attacks today um, because there's no patches, but we should really think of malware as the same way is that there is malware every day and hundreds of them where it is a week delay or longer. Right. Uh, so you're not looking most- at signatures at all. You're it's, it's all heuristic. Yeah, we do. We do have a signature capability. And the reason that we added that is a lot of security companies, they love to tout the fact that they're very generic and all this other sort of stuff. It's pretty much a kind of that sliding scale of the more generic you become, the higher chance that you could break valid applications or, you know, yes, you, get, you, you so, start, you start having a problem with false positives. Exactly. So we we try to keep the balance of we want to be as generic as possible, but I would never come out and say, you know, you never need to update Blink again or something like that, because I think that's kind of crazy talk. But the the other reason, you know, being able to react in a case where we didn't generically protect being able to react with the signatures is an important thing to have there. Um, I can safely say if you look at, you know, Microsoft attacks in, in 2006, I think we had to do uh, an after the fact kind of signature maybe two, three times. Um, which is a pretty good track record. Um, and the other important thing of, of uh, on, on really on a corporate side uh, of needing to do signatures um, is because if you're doing everything generically, you can't, you can't differentiate on a threat level. So you might have 100 events that say there was a you know, generic RPC attack, but it's important to know was the RPC attack due to a worm, a script kitty, a targeted attacker. Uh, you need to be able to make sense of when you have thousands of attacks that are coming into your console What's the needle in the haystack that you should, you know, care about that you should be responding to? Uh, well, which again, that's where RAM on the management side comes into making sense I, of that data. I really like the the architecture you have because this this protocol level filtering means that if something did happen to get through, you can look at how it was that it got past your filters and and strengthen them in a way that that closes not only that particular instance, but all kinds of other latent instances that you haven't actually encountered yet. Exactly. And that, I mean, specifically what you said is actually how we went through the design process of Blink, where uh, we sat down before figuring out, do we want to do network-based or protocol or anything? A lot lot of security products, they tend to pick a philosophy without analyzing the data set. And we looked at, we sat down and we looked at about five, 6,000 different uh, Windows-related vulnerabilities, not just Microsoft, but it could be Apache running on Windows. And looking at the five, 6,000 vulnerabilities, we tried to boil down what were all the common characteristics that existed that allowed the system to be compromised through this flaw. Not just the classes of attacks like buffer overflows, but how are protocols used, maybe RPC or HTTP, how are they manipulated in a way? And we really found that looking at these five, 6,000 vulnerabilities, that there truly was maybe a few hundred uh, different commonalities between them. And that was really the first effort of, you know, making sure that Blink is looking for these things generically. And, and it's an ongoing process of when there's new attacks and analyzing, was there other layers? You know, one of the good things about Blink is not just are we doing the network and application and everything, but typically if you take, uh, you know, take something that was, you know, very uh, popular and bad, like a Sasser worm, um, 
Blink actually stopped that with three different layers of protection. Uh, so it wasn't just that we, you know, lucked out that one of our rules caught it, but a lot of times there's multiple rules within Blink that'll catch most of the attacks that, you know, that exist today. Let's use a, a, a recent example, uh, the animated cursor uh, flaw. And uh, you knew about this long before Microsoft admitted to it or patched it. You knew about it in October, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. And, and I want to talk a little bit later on about this whole issue of when do you tell the public? When do you, <laughs> you know, how, how long do you hold off? I, I know this is a hot button yeah. for you and a lot yeah, of uh, security researchers. But but let's ask specifically about Blink and the uh, anti-cursor flow. Did you put a patch in Blink? Because I know you had a patch before Microsoft did. Or do you not worry about that? Yeah, with with the that flaw specifically, Blink itself um, was already protecting uh, without an update or anything. Um, there was a couple layers that were protecting. That um, we so do nice. some stuff on the kind of like what we do with the network side of analyzing protocols and how they're behaving. We do similar similar stuff on the uh, file system side. Um, and we caught it with one layer there. And then also we have a, a system that's generically looking for uh, buffer overflows. So if we see, you know, you're trying to run code from some crazy place in heap or off the stack or whatever it might be, um, we'll generically flag and prevent those things. Um, so Blink now that's itself, different than, than you know, DEP, right? I mean, uh, and and I and I presume it, more robust than DEP, since you, yeah, it, you, it, you, you, DEP breaks so many things. Exactly, DEP, DEP's implemented um, uh, different than how you know than what we're actually doing because we do rather rather than something like DEP where it um, you know they're just super generically looking, hey, is their code executing off you know a place that it shouldn't be. We actually do a little bit of intelligence on looking at what types of code and this and that because you have stuff like Java, for example, that does actually do things that will make it look like you're executing code off the stack or whatever it might be, you know. And in those cases, you can have false positives. So we do a lot more intelligence around um, when some of these cases trigger doing a second step of, okay, is this really a bad thing or just an application that is acting a bit funny, if you will. Um, and that's the same in the case of the the ANI flaw, um, in the sense that you know the two different layers we are protecting without updating. So for a for a consumer, it's great because your antivirus doesn't really stop ANI, and you don't have a patch at that point. Um, whereas Blink, without a signature update or anything, is already preventing uh, the attack. That's definitely a benefit for a consumer. And on the corporate level, especially if you're talking, you know, you have two thousand systems or something. Uh, at that point, again, there is no patch, so you're protected without an update. But even when the patch comes out, it might take you a few weeks to roll it out or test it. If you're in the, you know, financial, uh, you know, financial world, uh, you have to do all the change control documentation, which also creates delays. So, what we ended up doing, which which um, we were asking earlier on, we did release a third-party patch um, for the ANI bug, and what that was is we actually wrote a specific. Uh, code fix specific to that flaw. So this is a completely separate thing than Blink. The reason we did that is that um, Blink is something that um, at, at the at the time we do have a uh, the free version now, basically. And at that time, it was kind of really what could we get uh, most people's attention on to download and protect themselves. Um, and at that, it was really more. I mean, that's kind of on a on a business decision at the time of we could try to tell. The reporters, hey, we got this Blink thing, but reporters are all hit with, you know, 10 companies that are saying my product protects and my product, you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Um, so the third-party patch thing is a lot easier way. And we kind of use the third-party patch, you know, the first screen that you got was, 
you can do this one-off patch, which will protect you from this single ANI flaw, uh, or you can go download Blink, which will protect you from ANI and every single other Microsoft flaw and zero day that uh, uh, that has existed, basically. Um, Boy, if I were in the security software business, I would not like you very much right now. <laughs> well, in, 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 yeah, in, we, fact, in fact, I was just going to say that I want to make sure our listeners heard that and that we make sure that like we heard it. So you guys have a free version of Blink that does a lot of this. Yeah, literally we have um, the the uh, marketing guys will probably shoot me for saying this, <laughs> but we have um, Blink, which is the exact same thing that we sell to companies all throughout the world. For like a lot of money, right? And for a lot of money, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, competitive, obviously, but a lot of money <laughs> um, all throughout the world. And uh, we literally took that exa- exact same... Uh, uh, technology and um, we we you know made it a personal consumer version so we changed some of the defaults the installation process make it a little bit more friendly uh, but the exact same kind of under the hood technology and it's basically free for uh, uh, a year is the catch um, for consumer use and anybody can go get it and download it and everything I've been describing with the zero day protection, the whole antivirus system. Oh, I mean, we, have so, we, have so, we have so many people right now that are, you know, their renewals are coming up for Symantec and McAfee and they're all, you know, downloading Blink. And we, we still have work to do because, um, again, Blink was really first meant for uh, companies to be using. And so it's got great protection and the, uh, current interface we're looking to kind of simplify a little bit more and that sort of thing make it flow and be a little bit easier for consumers but our first and ultimate goal um, is to really just make the out of the box where the compatibility is good and uh, as far as what it you know what it works with and those sort of things and one of the ways that we do that and you know the kind of kind of catch uh, as the American way goes there's nothing really free so our catch on free is basically that any of the attacks uh, or vulnerabilities um, that are uh, being discovered on your computer or sent back to EI anonymously. And the two uses of that for us um, is number one, to improve any bugs. So if there's a spike in, uh, I don't know, Yahoo Messenger or something, we know there's definitely a bug, something going wrong there, maybe a false positive. Uh, And then number two is to figure out what are the, uh, maybe something that we're generically protecting uh, with our buffer overflow system that we should have uh, a network intrusion prevention rule for and that sort of thing. Um, and basically all that goes back into the product uh, for the consumers also. Very um, nice. And, and so is, is Blink um, somehow updating itself during during this uh, first year free period also? Yeah, so Blink, you can set it to, because uh, the last component of Blink, which I didn't even mention, is there's actually our Retina product, which I was describing earlier, the 9,000 whatever customers where you can you know, identify all your vulnerabilities. Right. Uh, we actually threw that in the Blink. So there's a full-blown vulnerability assessment solution within Blink. Um, the engine's been slimmed down as far as interface and that sort of thing. But there's about 3,000 plus um, vulnerability audits that Blink will also do. And so it'll tell you what patches you're missing, where to go get the patches, uh, anything that's potentially misconfigured. One of the eye-opening statistics that we saw, um, all the uh, anonymous Blink data comes back to um, actually our, our, uh, one of our REM systems. And one of the interesting statistics we saw is that 
most uh, home users, they're, they're getting better at making sure they stay up to date uh, with Microsoft patches as far as the timeline of when their Windows update is, is uh, you know, patching their system and whatnot. Um, but one of the things that we saw is that the greatest number of vulnerabilities um, are actually the non-Microsoft vulnerabilities and, and yep. the vulnerabilities within iTunes or Adobe or QuickTime or Flash, and the list goes on and on. And one of the things in 2006 that I was kind of preaching at as many conferences as I could is this idea that, you know, very simple idea, but it's more than the Microsoft world. And really the, the simplest way to compromise most consumers and most companies uh, these days are actually through non-Microsoft vulnerabilities. It's in the corporate world, your uh, you know, Veritas backup software having vulnerabilities or your IBM laptops that have an ActiveX flaw. The list goes on and on. But the problem is that if you look at what exploits are being created, for example, the uh, open source exploit platforms like Metasploit, um, they do cover non-Microsoft and they come out with exploits just as fast uh, for non-Microsoft flaws as they do for Microsoft. But if you ask the average person in the IT world, you know, what did you do when the Veritas flaw came out? Did you have a Patch Tuesday? You know, there is no Patch Tuesdays or quick responses or anything else. So. In the consumer world, it's even it's even worse because, uh, again, the um, you know average consumer they they don't understand when iTunes pops up and says, you know, hey, there's a new 42 meg installer that you need to do. <laughs> uh, they're like, well, why would I do that? Because my music's playing fine, and I don't want to wait for that you know thing to download and whatever else. Um, and there's a real problem with most uh, non-Microsoft applications, you know, like some of the ones I listed where. They, they're, they're not good at separating features versus security updates uh, and also the way that they inform their users and keep that right. software to date. So I think that's probably one of the more eye-opening uh, components of Blink is the vulnerability assessment piece on really showing you that even if you're running Windows Update every night, you're not actually secure. There truly is other things that people can leverage uh, to compromise you. And that's another thing that's a part of Blink that's there. And I mean, the you can't find another host-based uh, product that does that. And that part's free, uh, part of the free version also. I don't I mean, suppose, well, suppose we could convince you to write a Blink for Mac by any chance or Linux. <laughs> We're, we, uh, we, we toy with the idea. I mean, it, it, obviously that all comes down to the, uh, you know, the business side. On and, you guys are, and you guys are Windows experts. I mean, it's, I mean that's your... Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so what we, this is also saying is that um, in terms of this application vulnerability issue... Windows itself is is really no longer the the lowest hanging fruit. There are now because Microsoft has been effective with Windows Update, with like Patch Tuesday, with with over the course of you know the last five years, slowly and painfully educating users. That message really has gotten through, but no one has really yet awoken up to the fact that there's all these other things which are trying to enhance themselves by by being network aware like you know backup software that now wants to be on the net yeah. we would just like the next the next round of vulnerabilities for everyone to deal with it, it is and it's i mean it's an interesting thing you know one of the things i tell people is you know, I look at the start of Microsoft security as as really happening you know uh, back in about 1999 or so um, and that was where, you know, I personally found some of the first uh, remotely exploitable uh, Microsoft flaws. And then years later, we saw stuff like Code Red and whatnot. And really in the uh, last eight or nine years, um, yeah, I kind of started at the beginning of Microsoft's uh, thing, really. But in the last eight or nine years, 
Microsoft has progressed greatly, and and they do have one of the best uh, uh, security response, in, or not just response, but really security processes in general of how they build their software, how they try to educate users, and and that sort of thing. And in that last eight or nine years, as Microsoft has pushed the bar and to make their software more secure, researchers and also you know just bad guys that are trying to exploit systems. They've also improved and added a lot of skills and, and, you know, basically things to the toolbox, if you will. And if you were kind of put that on, you know, a graph, if you will, you'd see Microsoft and the average researcher just climbing and doing better. But you can label almost any other uh, software company out there, and they're pretty much a flat line um, because most other software companies have never had an incentive or right. a reason to focus on security. I mean... Microsoft's themselves, you know, as much as it might be out of the kindness of their heart or something, we all know that businesses revolve around the bottom line of, of money and everything else. And if you're not losing money based on having insecure software, you're not going to spend the money to make more secure software versus adding new features to stay competitive. Yeah. Um, and I really think that, uh, there is, sorry, there's a time coming. I mean, we saw one of the first uh, non-Microsoft uh, worms uh, targeting uh, Symantec's antivirus. And I think we're going to see uh, a lot more of that in the future. Yep, and, 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 and frankly, while I completely agree with you that Microsoft has finally got it, look how long it yeah. took. I mean, look at the an incredible <laughs> yeah. inertia they had, you know, exactly. not to get it for so long. So, yeah, yeah I mean, yep. And the, the, the interesting part, you know, the kind of go, you know, the, the, this more than the Microsoft world, usually the way that I end up, you know, because everybody usually is surprised. They're like, wow, Mark Mayfrey's, you know, <laughs> saying all these nice things about, about Microsoft. And, 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 and I do mean it all. They do, they do truly have the, the, the best practice around security than any other software company. I'll say that time and time again. The, the thing that worries me is not, not just that the attack surface um, is shifting and will shift uh, to non-Microsoft flaws, but it also worries me with all the marketing now that Microsoft does around things like Vista and Office 2007 and related. Um, it, it really worries me about people becoming complacent and just kind of a little bit idle uh, as far as making sure that we keep Microsoft on the path of uh, writing secure software. And the, the way that I usually like to end that uh, kind of presentation is I'll do a demonstration of you can basically take Windows Vista which is, you know, the most secure thing ever from Microsoft in Office 2007, uh, which also went through the full, you know, security development uh, lifecycle and everything. And I'll actually do a remote uh, exploit, remote hacking demonstration on showing um, a malformed uh, Office file uh, that then leads to code execution and uses a local uh, Vista kernel privilege escalation so that you go from the local unprivileged user to running code in the kernel. Huh. And it pretty much shatters all layers of, of Vista and Office 2007 security. And the reason that that's important is because there definitely isn't an end, uh, and I don't think you'll see a big tapering off of, of Microsoft vulnerabilities. And, and really, I think the thing that we'll come to a point on is that when it comes to Microsoft and security, I think we'll see that even if you're doing everything possible that you can as a software company to make your software secure, there's still going to be flaws. And there really doesn't need to be that many flaws a year uh, to, you know, kind of cause the same, you know, negative aspect on Microsoft or, or really negative aspects on people's computers and, and networks. If you, if, you thought, if you think about it, most, most businesses, if they were to have, you know, even, uh, you know, once a month or every couple of months, 
uh, a major critical vulnerability that they're worrying about, that's going to keep them busy. And, and when you put it in that terms, you're really talking about maybe 12 vulnerabilities uh, a year. And when you look at the entire Microsoft attack surface between the operating system and all the common applications, to say that there's not going to be 12 mistakes a year, uh, it's kind of, that would, I don't think we'll ever kind of get to that point. So there's always going to be uh, those problems every couple of months where you do need to rush out, you do need to patch. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I can't, can't say enough on that. Microsoft has come a long way. Um, and the, the last point on the Vista, since I was talking about it, is um, Vista has a lot of security improvements, but they're really towards uh, improvements around uh, Microsoft code itself. If you look at something, uh, for example, like they added the address-based uh, randomization, which is a good way to help prevent some buffer overflows, they added that to Vista. And uh, one of the things that's interesting, though, is most of that is focused on Microsoft applications. So one of the flaws we found recently affects Java, which I think a couple people still use. <laughs> and in the case of the uh, Java flaw, um, you can be running Vista with all the latest patches, everything enabled. And if you go to the wrong website, we can compromise you through a Java flaw, which is, again, another example of the kind of non-Microsoft uh, world. And one last uh, point, <laughs> before we get off Microsoft, but one last point uh, is that the two vulnerabilities that we found, uh, the, the vulnerability within uh, Vista itself, the kernel, and the vulnerability within Office 2007, the most eye-opening aspect was that the vulnerable code only exists in Office 2007 and only exists in Vista, which means huh, these aren't two new. legacy bugs that got missed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was new code that was added. And that, that to me was even more eye-opening than, hey, we found the Vista flaw, but right. that it was actually you know, new code and that kind of thing. Let me uh, let's not get off Microsoft quite yet, because there is an yeah, issue that, that comes up with security researchers all the time. And it's a it's an important philosophical issue to reveal yeah. or not to reveal when you find a security flaw. Yeah, the, I mean, there's definitely levels. And I mean, for me, that the, there's a lot of terms that should just be killed off, like full disclosure and responsible disclosure, and because everybody means things different. So to, to me, you know, kind of how you should handle vulnerabilities and, and what you should do to it. Um, you know, what we do at EI is when we discover a vulnerability, we need to take it to the point of understanding everything we can about the vulnerability, knowing that a vendor isn't always going to get it right and isn't always going to want to tell you the truth. Um, so we'll research it. And it could take us, you know, it could take us a month that we're researching this thing and figuring out all the aspects. But at that point that you feel comfortable that you have as much of an understanding as you can, uh, at that point, you should be re uh, reporting it to the vendor and you should be giving the giving them the time that it takes uh, to fix the flaw. In some uh, in cases, other words, reveal it to the vendor, but not to the public right away. Exactly. I mean, you should never really real, reveal it to uh, reveal details, uh, like, like actual specific details. You should never um, reveal to the public until a patch has been created. The problem comes into play is that um, in the case of companies like Microsoft, they can end up taking sometimes close to a year uh, to actually create a patch. And they have all these crazy reasons of why that is. Uh, to me, there's really no excuse to take a year. And the problem that comes into play with that is that for a company like EI, I mean, we're, we're a business. And uh, the last thing in the world from all sorts of perspective, perspectives that we want to do is, is release a zero day or something that doesn't help anybody. Um, I, I can definitely see why a lot of independent researchers uh, do come to the point of frustration where it has taken so long for Microsoft that they do just want to tell people about it. 
because especially in the current climate where one of the things we're all most worried about is zero-day attacks, the longer Microsoft takes to patch a certain flaw, the more chances um, that the flaw is already known uh, within the underground is being used to exploit systems. And the ANI vulnerability is is uh, one of the perfect examples of that, where it was actually found by a security company, uh, Determina, and the um, or the second ANI flaw, not the EI one, um, was actually found by a security company, and then was actually take took months for Microsoft, and we saw it come out in the wild uh, and in the uh, you know in a zero day fashion. And that really, again, goes back to there, there isn't a lot of time. Uh, you know, you got to make a good patch. You know, it needs to go through QA and stuff. Uh, but I think we could all safely say that, you know, a, a year is probably too long. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and again, it comes down that, you know, there's, there's independent researchers who there really is no, um, there's nothing illegal. You can go release as many zero days as you want tomorrow. And uh, that's a whole nother debate about laws. Um, but there's nothing illegal about uh, releasing, um, you know, is there, uh, you know, a new flaw tomorrow without telling a vendor, and you know, for a lot of independent researchers, there really is no motivation to to work with the vendor because it's a very painful process. Um, the, the vendor wants to minimize everything they can about the flaw, uh, yeah. whether that's saying what's right or wrong or what's real or not. It's it it still is a marketing problem for them. Um, they want to minimize everything. So there's a kind of a lot of uh, BS that a lot of researchers have to go through. And I, I can't blame a lot of independent researchers for not wanting to have to go through that for, you know, six months with Microsoft or some companies out there that are even worse, like the oracles of the world. Um, and, and ultimately, yeah. you guys, you, uh, security researchers never get anything back really for the trouble except maybe a little mention in some you know some postscript note somewhere at the bottom of of an announcement of you know thanks to so and so for reporting this exactly i mean for you know for independent researchers um i mean you you get you know some recognition you know you post your advisor on a mailing list or something so maybe if you're looking for a job or you want to get noticed by an ei or you know somebody like that um, but yeah, otherwise it's it's a lot of time without uh, really any value, and that's why you see a lot of uh, the independent researchers that not only are they actually um, just not simply telling Microsoft, but they're not actually telling anybody. They're actually selling the exploits um, to third parties. Uh, you know, in some cases it could be legitimate uh, third parties. You know, companies like iDefense or you know the Tipping Point Initiative and stuff like that. Uh, but in a lot of cases, uh, these things are being sold. In some cases, to uh, the bad guys, if you will, that are, um, you know, using zero day to couple it with, um, you know, whatever scam of the month that they're doing, you know, as far as a phishing attack or something of that nature. Um, we saw with the ANI uh, zero day uh, that within about a week of it becoming kind of a public thing uh, that there was actually already websites that were hosting it and they had malware attached to it to where if you went to that website, <clears throat> it would actually scan looking for credit card information uh, on your system to be sent back. And that was all in a very short period of time. And that kind of gets back to what I was saying on Blink is that the attacks now are very, very different, that the, the bad guys aren't, aren't hoping you accidentally run an EXE from an, an attachment. Uh, they're hoping that you go to the wrong web page uh, or that um, you're using you know, Microsoft Office and you open a Word document or whatever. Um, because they're taking advantage of uh, vulnerabilities within software flaws much more these days uh, than the kind of you know human, uh, for lack of a better word, stupidity or or whatnot. 
one of the things as I'm sure you know that I've that early on I was really waving my arms around about was that Microsoft for years kept shipping Windows systems with open services, you know, yeah. with with exposed services. So so I, you know, I was early on the bandwagon trying to get people to run personal firewalls and yeah. more re- uh, and more recently, you know, being behind a router which is inherently giving you, you know, stateful connection protection. Exactly. So, so it really is the case, first of all, with, with finally with Service Pack 2, having its own firewall running by default, thank God, and of yeah. course, everything since then, and, and even more so with so many residential users now being behind routers, that the nature of attacks has really changed to, to, exactly. one, to one where you know, you, you're, you're counting on users to go out and do something to get themselves infected rather than having just a system sitting there doing nothing that is going to automatically, you know, pick up a blaster worm, you know, over, yep. over its internet connection. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're totally right. I mean, the, the, the attacks have uh, shifted from being, you know, the kind of network based, the sassers, the blasters and those kind of things um, to really targeting a lot more of uh, the kind of client applications, uh, which to me is, is a kind of scarier proposition because if you're targeting, you know, the Outlook vulnerability, the Office vulnerabilities, or, or something of that nature, a Skype vulnerability, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you're targeting, <laughs> <Uh-oh. Uh-oh. laughs> if you're, <laughs> if you're targeting uh, those kind of application vulnerabilities, especially in the business world, most uh, average companies, they're very dependent on perimeter security. You know, they put up their firewall and they kind of have... Yep. You know, the same thing that we used to say back in, you know, the 90s of you got your castle and the moat and everything like that. And most businesses are still that way. You know, maybe they have antivirus on the desktop is about it. But when it comes to these client application vulnerabilities, the easiest way to really do some damage and get some data out of a company, it, uh, you know, is to send the, uh, you know, Microsoft Word Zero Day uh, to the HR department at a large company and the lady in HR opens it word disappears she's none the wiser now i have that computer compromised now that i'm on the inside of your network i take the a remote attack like the uh, dns uh, zero day uh, to target your active directory server and now i've compromised that and i can do anything i want to your company and this all happens within a few hours and the big problem there again is because we're not really protecting the insides of our network you know we've put up all these walls around it yeah and as one would expect the attack shift that well if there's walls everywhere i'm going to go ahead and find different ways either kind of under or over or whatnot and that's what we're seeing with uh, all the app you know the kind of client application attacks and file format attacks you know I, I i generally it seems if i look back go sort of for like from one crusade to another and i'm sure you are aware of my raw sockets crusade uh, <laughs> definitely <laughs> before the launch of xp trying not to let microsoft send XP out with raw sockets. And of course it took a couple of years and two service packs before they finally reluctantly, yep. you know, pulled that out. Yep. Um, now the thing that I drive security now listeners and especially Leo crazy with is I, I'm just, I'm so against browser scripting because yep. it's just such a problem. I mean, you're, if, if you, if you're scripting in your browser, you, you've enabled your client, your browser client to run code from any site you visit. Yep, exactly. And, and, I mean, and how is that ever going to be safe? 
Yeah, and it, it it honestly is is really headed headed for the worst. I mean the the I mean you guys know as much as anybody that the browser is becoming <laughs> might as well be becoming the operating system almost yep. itself. You know, if yep. Google and everybody else has their way, and as that happens more, it means that you're going to have so much more of this kind of web enabled content and stuff. And really, all that ends up doing, whether it's active scripting or uh, Flash or what's the new Microsoft Silverlight, I believe it's called. That's right as all these things are added to the browser to make the browser kind of this more rich experience and really to make it like a win 32 app and everything else, uh, the more that they do that, the more that you increase, increase, uh, the ability, the, the attack surface or really the number of areas where an attacker can supply uh, malformed code, uh, and potentially compromise, you know, the system and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, I, I, that is almost, you know, from a browser perspective, um, uh, there's kind of no end in sight as far as, you know, the quote unquote browser vulnerabilities. But I really think a lot of that is you, you could almost say there's also no end in sight on the operating system vulnerabilities. And it's it's really a byproduct of the browser itself becoming uh, much more of this uh, platform, you know what I mean, that everything's starting to live in and exist in. Right. And, 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 and again, it's not, it's not so much that things on the outside are any longer able to come in because, yeah. as, as, as you said, there is good border security now it's yep. things you know on the inside things people do that invite yep. the bad the bad guys in across exactly. your border and we see that i mean if the uh, attacks like we've seen that have come across stuff like myspace for example uh you know embedding things within that and then using that to do different browser attacks and you know that that sort of stuff kind of goes on and on and I think one of the interesting aspects that people haven't really talked much or or, or did too much forward thinking on is one of the uh, scary aspects of security uh, as we move into kind of this everything's hosted online everything's you know managed services and software as a service and whatnot um, as everything becomes more hosted on the web it becomes actually harder uh, for, for third-party independent researchers to actually audit uh, products at that point for vulnerabilities uh, if you take good for point. example yeah. uh, what Google um, is doing with a lot of the kind of you know basically trying to bring something like Microsoft Office in a web browser experience, you can't really sit there and test uh, that experience for vulnerabilities because when you're doing the testing, you're actually doing it with a third-party server, which at that point becomes illegal um, for you to actually do that. Uh, a lot of the software companies are excited by that idea. I know some of the security guys at Microsoft love what Microsoft is doing with Microsoft Live because they're like, if the software's on a web server, you can't really mess with it as much uh, in a legal manner, so we shouldn't see as many flaws. The bad thing is that <laughs> the, 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 the white hat, the good researchers, the guys at places like EI, yeah, it does make it harder for us to look for flaws because we're not going to illegally interact with a Microsoft web server or Google. But the real bad guys who don't care about laws, they're still going to be looking for flaws, and they're still going to be finding them. Um, so in those cases, it kind of cripples uh, some of the good researchers. And the thing that becomes kind of compounded by it all is that when you have all these kind of web-enabled, you know, and online services and stuff, uh, it makes it where I, I don't need to find, you know, if I find that vulnerability uh, within Outlook, for example, I can target a user here or a user there. If I find the vulnerability within, uh, you know, Outlook Live or or whatnot, some web-based version, that means now I have the potential to compromise a system that now ha uh, you know uh, houses every user of Outlook, uh, and so the kind of value of an attack uh, 
becomes much greater as everything turns into you know hosted web servers and everything oh, else. So you know, there's a that's going to be interesting. You know, what, what, one thing that that you're touching on uh, brings up an issue that I was going to ask you about, and that is the the work you've been doing and its potential collision with the DMCA. Yeah. Yeah, from the one good thing about the DMCA does actually have a provision that if you're uh, doing reverse engineering um, uh, because of uh, doing security research and looking for vulnerabilities, that is actually uh, legal and protected. Um, a lot of people blur the lines on on and get up in arms on on DMCA is really more around uh, people that are defeating you know the copyright restrictions and stuff like that, which is what it's meant for. But uh, you can go and take uh, Internet Explorer and reverse engineer and print out all the assembly code and do whatever you want uh, as far as looking for flaws. And there's nothing illegal uh, about doing that. Um, but like I said, if it's hosted on a web server, you can't really sit there and throw different attacks at it all day because that does become uh, Very, illegal, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, depending how it's done. So I, I think that'll be in a, kind of an interesting, you know, shift and change and, you know, how we're doing vulnerability research, you know, how companies are, are protecting from those sort of things. I mean, um, some benefits is that if there is a if there is a flaw uh, within uh, a web service, uh, unlike something like Outlook, where you have to now push a patch out through Windows Update and hope right. everybody out there gets it, with a web web enabled stuff, you change it on one ser you know your cluster of servers, and now everybody's protected. Uh, so it does make some things on security actually a lot easier and a lot better. But you're right, by centralizing all of that and notice in an instance like, for example, Google Mail, where you also have yep. everybody's data in addition. Yep. So, so you've got centralized repository of data. And if you're able to get into that server and, and farm the data, you know, we're talking about spectacular, you know, the potential for spectacular disasters. Uh, de definitely. And I, I think we've... I mean, we, we haven't even began to see uh, how that goes. I mean, you look at the data theft that we all uh, worry about today, uh, you know, when, you know, was it uh, TGX or somebody like that, you know, uh, loses customer data. I mean, those things uh, are obviously bad. And if, uh, you know, somebody does SQL injection and gets customer data, it's, it's a bad thing. Uh, but when you talk about now we're going to have uh, most all home users that all their data is sitting online at a third party uh, number one, there's a lot of weird privacy things. I, I always joke with friends that I'm pretty sure the NSA started Google because that's the best way to spy on everybody. Um, but uh, not only is the privacy stuff there, but when if those servers are compromised, now you're talking about uh, instant access to everybody's data. And it's it's similar to, you know, when we make analogies about, um, you know, the, the kind of real world, if you will, uh, to cyberspace about, you know, in the real world, you know, I could go door to door trying to breaking into a house in cyberspace, it's easier because I can sit from one computer in the middle of China and attack thousands of systems. And then when you start talking about it moving to this kind of web, you know, service type stuff, uh, now it's, I don't even need to attack a thousand systems. Now I'm the one guy sitting in China that's attacking one server somewhere, and now I get those thousands of systems, uh, virtual systems, if you will. When they when, uh, instantaneously. When, yes, when, when they come over and hook up to that central location. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's sort. Of, I mean, you don't think of it this way, of course, but in in the same way that IRC servers are used to collect zombies, you have the same sort of networking model yep. where where a whole bunch of of browser clients are all connected to a central server, and you know you just 
send them all a, a vulnerable ActiveX control, which they'll happily instantiate and <laughs> exactly. off you go. Exactly. So, I, like I said, I think that will be an interesting, uh, interesting to see how that all kind of progresses and plays out. What do you Looking think about <laughs> um, what? Do, what do you think about Windows versus Mac security? Um, yeah, I mean the the a lot of the, some of the stuff in Vista, like address space randomization and the uh, the whole UAC annoying stuff and everything. Um, I mean, some of it's just real real bad knockoffs of what you know has been existed in the Unix world forever. Sure. Um, you know, especially on the kind of user you know experience side of security. Uh, the, the main thing that it still comes down to is, you know, I personally, I, I think the Mac is great. I use it for all my music recording and all that. And it, but from a security perspective is that, you know, Windows still is the 90 whatever percent uh, of what the world is running on. So you're always going to have more Microsoft vulnerabilities. The thing I think is very sad um, about Apple is that a a Apple doesn't write any more secure or, or necessarily worse, but any more secure uh, software than Microsoft or anybody. A Apple's code is just as bad as anybody else's. That there is like kind of the the uh, the thought for for most people uh, that Apple's and Macs are more secure. Uh, mostly, again, it's because people in the research community. Uh, if I'm going to spend you know three weeks looking for a bug, I'm not going to do it in Apple because there's not as much value compared to Windows. Well, and uh, you 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 guys are also big in the in the enterprise space, and you know enterprise is. PCs running Windows. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, the, the part I was getting to on it being sad about uh, Apple is that they really are at a point right now that if they truly started to focus on security, uh, they could actually get security right before people realize that they're actually not as secure as all the ads and all the kind of uh, the culture around it, uh, the blogs and everything else would lead people to believe um, you know, and I've, I've, uh, they, 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 they do pretty much the same mistakes that, you know, Microsoft was doing eight, nine years ago where it's yep. security is more of a marketing problem. Um, you know, the way that they do updates and the way that they do the notifications is very flawed. And, you know, I'm, we, we've, we've found a handful of, um, uh, Apple, like QuickTime and whatnot flaws in the past. And again, it was very much the kind of culture of Microsoft, you know, eight or nine years ago and stuff. Wow. Well, and of course, so, it's no surprise that, that, that people think that the, 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 the Mac is more secure than Windows because we see those two guys on our TV sets now talking about how, you know. It must be. One, yeah, the ads one, say so. Yeah, it must one, be. One guy's able to get sick and the other one can't get sick. Right, and it's right. like, okay. Yeah, I thought that was kind of exactly. asking for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of equated that ad to, you know, when, uh, when Oracle came out and, you know, did their whole Unbreakable campaign and, Oracle went from uh, yeah. not really a target to everybody went after Oracle yeah. for that. Right. Uh, again, there's a different value thing because Oracle is actually, you know, the right there with SQL number one database stuff. So there's value in finding Oracle flaws as far as the impact and what you can do and number of people affected. Uh, with the Mac, that statement still isn't true. But if, if, they're, if they become more successful as a business in the sense of gaining more market share and everything else, they will become more of a, a target. And my real hope for them right now is that they pretty much are untainted. Mac has a great uh, perception of being secure and being better and all this stuff. And if they really started now focusing on security, by the time that they get to the point where they have the market share that will cause them to be a target, they could be secure. And the whole perception that exists now could actually be a reality uh, and it could be a great thing for them. The part that 
is just on a random personal crusade level frustrating for me is most of the people at Apple still don't seem to get that from a security perspective. They're actually kind of drinking their own Kool-Aid uh, without actually doing some fact checking. Well, I hope they're listening right now. Hey, one last question. <laughs> yeah. yeah, please listen, guys. Wake up. Wake up. Uh, Blink is not available uh, right now for Vista. Uh, do you have plans to make it available for Vista? Yeah, we're, we're shooting right now towards the end of the year, basically. Okay. So and, 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 and Leo, you know, no security conscious user is going to be using Vista now anyway. So <laughs> well, I don't um, know if that's true. Is that really um, true? Would you say that's true? Don't use Vista if you're worried about security? I, no, I wouldn't say don't use. There, there's um, the, if you have Windows XP today uh, from a security perspective, there's not that much compelling stuff that I would say upgrade because of security. If there's some features that you think are interesting, I don't know what those would be, but if there's some features you think, <laughs> you think are interesting um, in Vista, uh, then maybe you want to upgrade because of that. Or but just but go you get said, as you're saying, an important, <laughs> but, get a Mac, right? It's a, you said an important yeah. thing, which is don't upgrade to Vista for security. Yeah, I, th- I think that, Mike, one of, the, one of the interesting things with Vista in, in general is that there really isn't a lot of compelling features to upgrade to Vista versus XP. I mean, most of the stuff is the same. Or again, very much a catch up to the Mac. So th- things like UAC one of the things doesn't that might, make a difference. No, things like UAC don't. I mean, things like UAC is, is and there's even a lot of uh, internal stuff at Microsoft where there's... Mark Rosinovich uh, you know, has been saying that. Oh, yeah. It just, it's, uh, it's an annoyance thing. It has no real value. <laughs> Um, you know, and so I, I don't think, uh, you know, you should run out and purchase Vista because you want to be more secure. Um, you know, that, that's not the reason if you're buying a new computer and it comes with Vista, you know, by all means go, go for it. It's, it's, it's definitely not less secure. Uh, but you know, the hundred, whatever dollars it is to get Vista, um, to do it based on security. I mean, just there's, it's, there's not enough. sounds like your, your, your most secure situation is to run XP or windows 2000 and blink. Well, and, <laughs> and, 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 and tell us what happens after the first free year as a Blink user, as a Blink personal user. Is, is, is it then yeah. something that is affordable from then on? Yeah, so after that, it's and you can even buy it now if you don't want to send you know, anonymous stuff to EI and you want support. Um, I believe the specific price is about $26 or so. Oh, my God. Uh, that's a good deal, yeah. Leo... Um, I, I think we're going to sell a lot of copies of Blink. I well, yeah, I just I think that, that that's very compelling. You can't. Uh, I should just say we have a lot of listeners outside the U.S. and Canada. I presume this is for legal reasons. You for, can't you can't get it outside the U.S. and Canada for free for the for the free version. Exactly. We do we do have a restriction on that um, for a number of <laughs> boring legal reasons. And, and, yeah. and it's 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 lighter weight than the Symantec or the McAfee security suites. I mean, Sounds that, like it's that, much that lighter weight. Yeah. That really perked my ears up yeah. immediately. Exactly. I mean, we, we use, um, you know, when I was talking about all the layers that we have, we're smart where depending on what application and what attack, uh, the layers don't overlap themselves as far as effort on the computer. So it'll use less, not only RAM, uh, you know, memory and whatnot, uh, but also as far as the uh, CPU performance and that sort of thing. And I gave you an example. Uh, actually, Blink Personal after the year or if you want support now is uh, twenty four ninety five for deal. one computer or three computers is twenty nine dollars. So it's a very good deal. Thank you for making that uh, so affordable. That's great. No, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping my mom stops calling me about. Stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's funny when we're building stuff, when we're adding stuff in engineering for uh, for stuff like Blink. I mean, there's just as much 
such features as we want to get done and complete just for our own network and protecting ourselves sure. and then also all of our you know family members were like no no we got this great thing you know sure on a personal level so well mark this has been absolutely fantastic i am so glad that we followed up on on once a few weeks ago saying hey you know we ought to have mark yeah. on and, <laughs> yeah it's been really this great this has really been no, great. I definitely i mean thanks for the invitation i always listen to you guys and when we uh when we got the offer i was ecstatic so great. i mean i've Knowing you guys both before, and you guys are doing a great job, man. Keep it up. Thank you so much. That's Mark Mayfrey, M-A-I-F-F-R-E-T, and the company is E-E-Y-E dot com. You can get Blink if you go to the, the E-I dot com site and you click the products button and drop it down there. Blink Personal is the free one for folks in the U.S. and Canada, and then you, what, you can also buy a license if you're outside. And I think 20, what do you say, 22 bucks? That's not bad. Twenty something ninety five. Yeah, you know the, the the marketing guys have been into it, of course. Nothing. Um, yeah. I've got to say, you know, I, I am going to start recommending this. What he talked about, the architecture of Blink, is so so correct compared to always following behind and doing pattern based. Um, you know, download the the latest security updates, and you're not safe until then. This thing preemptively protects people and what i love most you know me coding everything in assembly language is that apparently from, from what mark said this is dramatically lighter weight than any of the contemporary monster security suites so i think this gives you i mean certainly you want to be behind i guess you want to be behind a personal firewall we didn't really ask him if it's also doing firewall technology because he did mention that at the enterprise level it has that too but, you know, anybody with XP and Vista already has one. Um, I don't know if it does outbound protection. I'm going to have to study it a little bit. Um, but, boy, Leo, I think this is terrific. Let's, uh, before we uh, finish this up, I want to mention, as long as we're talking about security, the good folks at Astaro who have been with us for so long, they have, of course, a hardware security solution that is the ultimate security gateway. It does everything. I mean, everything. Uh, that you need when it comes to security, including email security like spam and phishing filters. You get dual virus protection for email, transparent encryption at the gateway, which is really neat. If you want to use PGP or SMIME encryption, your your desktops, your your users don't need to know anything about it. It happens automatically at the gateway, both in and out, encryption and decryption. Uh, you also get, of course, uh, a great list of security features like uh, you get the uh, antivirus for the web, anti-spyware. You get instant message and peer-to-peer control. You get network protection, firewall, remote access, VPN. By the way, the new SSL VPN in version 7 is so great, so easy to use. Intrusion protection also. also, And it grows with you because it can be scaled. Up to 10 security gateways can be connected, uh, making it a very, very good solution for a business that's growing. You don't need to install additional load balancers or anything. It just does it automatically. It's a patent-pending technology that increases the speed and the reliability of network traffic. And as far as the home user licenses, we mentioned before, it's open source. You can download it for free if you're a home user from ASTARO.com. In fact, they are now including in the base license all subscriptions in a Staro up-to-date that used to charge €79 for it. So that is a really, really slick deal. ASTARO.com or call 877, the number 4, Astaro, if you'd like to get a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway version 7 in your business. That's 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. Thank you so much to Astaro for 
being such a great supporter of security now for almost a year, almost a year now. In fact, over a year. What am I saying? It's been a long time. Steve, uh, any other uh, items? Next week, we got our Q&A, right? Yep, we're going to launch into our Q&A, and then uh, the week after that, we're going to continue with a never-ending stream of, <laughs> of, of I, hopefully, fun and entertaining and interesting security discussion. Well, more people are listening all the time. I was just taking a look at the numbers and great growth, uh, and we're really glad that you listen to the show, and we hope you will keep listening. Uh, a reminder, of course, that GRC.com is Steve's home on the Internet. That's where you can go to find 16 kilobit versions of the show for the bandwidth impaired. You can get transcripts. I think this would be a great show to get the transcript of. We'll make sure Elaine gets to work on that right away. Um, we also have notes there and um, previous shows and Steve's great free security utilities, things like Securable. That's the new one. Shoot the Messenger, Unplug and Pray, Decombobulator, and the world-famous Shields Up. Rapidly approaching 50 million uses. Are you yeah. going to have a party for that or anything? I uh, will say hi. <laughs> Woohoo! You should give something <laughs> to the 50 millionth user. We can, we can work out something if you want. You want to have a prize package for the 50 millionth user? Would, you be, <laughs> would your logs be able to tell you who that was? No. We're at 49.816 very million. Close. You're going to point. At, at, at the rate that you go, how, how soon is that? A week, two, three? You got a couple hundred thousand? No, we do about 25,000 a day. So looks like it would be about, well, yeah, about 10 days. Holy cow. Holy cow. That's really neat. We should, something will, a horn should go off anyway. Uh, GRC.com, that's also where you'll find SpinRight, which is the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance utility, a must-have. And guys uh, on the Geek Squad, don't worry. You can get a license. Just go there. It's very affordable. We're big, on, we're big on forgiveness here. <laughs> Amnesty program. Anybody who's got a spin right and doesn't have a license, just go there right now. GRC.com. Steve Gibson. Wow, what a great show. We will see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.